Great to see everybody today. I uh, almost didn't recognize our church, so many ties, self-included, and uh, don't know quite to do with this whole thing. Uh, quick question, how many of you guys have already started your Easter celebrations this morning? You got an egg hunt going on back home, you got Easter egg baskets, and I'll see if you a bunch of kids raising their hands, that's good. Are we going peeps or chocolate, like chocolate, I like the chocolate Reese's eggs now, I think those are dominating this year, is that kind of winning? Yeah, I think so. Um, anybody start their morning with April Fool's already? I gotta admit, like, I've been dreading this day, because I'm going, oh man, this is our, like, big Sunday, right, and it's, it's April Fool's also. And I know some of you guys, and so that just doesn't always work out too well. Um, I've planted a few things around the church here for you this morning, so I hope you uh, enjoy those. If you're looking for a few, uh, a last-minute surprise for your kids, I want to share this one before we get going. Uh, I found this from a lady, a, a mom, who was just talking about on her blog about how she was pranking her kids this year. And she took these chocolate hollow bunnies, and, um, and she, she injected mustard on the inside of these bunnies. <laughs> And then wrapped it up and like put it in her kid's basket. So if you're looking for some like last minute ideas for some things to do, uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. It's like, we need some help with that one. So uh, my mom kind of did that too. That, that, it, it runs in our family. Uh, my mom did that to my older brother and sister a long, long time ago, except instead of chocolate bunnies and mustard, she did, uh, we were, they were making candy apples, and she exchanged some apples with onions. And, uh, you know, that, that's also another great one for you this morning, so uh, enjoy that, and kids, uh, hope your day is awesome. So with that, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me for real this time, and uh, we'll ask God to, to meet us this morning. Father, we're grateful. We're so unbelievably grateful for what we, what we get to celebrate today. God, the privilege to be able to join with friends and family in freedom and, and in safety and in comfort here in North Dallas. God, you don't have to give us these things, but you give them to us anyway. And Father, we worship you. We remember that you were crucified, dead, and buried, and then all of a sudden you weren't. God, you were crucified, dead, and buried, and now there's an empty tomb. And because of that, we can have life found in you, Father, and I pray that you would do exactly that this morning, that some of us would come to believe in you for the very first time. God, we are not worshiping a, a God who's still stuck in the grave. We're wor- worshiping a resurrected King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, God, and I pray that you would meet us here this morning, and I pray that you would illuminate your word, and God, I pray that you would grant faith to those who may not have it today. Would you speak to us, God? You're invited into this place. Would you come and speak to us and take center stage of everything that we do today. We love you. We praise you. We give you this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, one more time, church, it is fantastic to be back with you guys. I love Easter. I want to wish you all a happy Easter. And to all of our guests this morning, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. I just want to acknowledge that on a day like Easter, uh, a lot of you are probably here doing a favor for someone that you love, right? And if you're being really, really honest, you probably have to say, you know, church is not exactly my thing. And you've got all kinds of great reasons for that, right? Maybe you've come before and the whole thing is just incredibly boring and you've never really understood why people get so fanatical about Jesus. Or maybe it's an intellectual problem, like maybe you've got a hard time reconciling the problem of so much pain and evil and suffering in the world with this idea of a good and holy God and that whole thing just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Or maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe you've been burned at some point in the past by a church or by a person, a Christian, or a group of Christians, or maybe you're just watching TV and you're sitting there going, okay, if that's what Christianity is like, if it's those people on TV saying those things over there and doing those different things, like I want absolutely nothing to do with those things, whatever the thing may be, just want to let you know that you have a place here. 
Um, your questions, your concerns, they're valid. We'd love to talk with you. And you're welcome to be here. I'm genuinely, genuinely glad that you are here this morning. The Word of God is going to say that you actually chose a fantastic Sunday to be here because I talk about this with the church. This is essentially our Super Bowl of all Sundays, right? I mean, this is the big Sunday. This is the thing that everything hangs on. I mean, Paul's going to talk about it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what the Bible is going to say about Easter Sunday. He's going to say that uh, the resurrection, what we're celebrating here today with Easter, like this is a matter of first importance. He's going to say if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Like more than that, like we're all false witnesses about God. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and we are still dead in our sins. In other words, church, what we're doing and celebrating this morning, this is not a secondary issue. Like this isn't, this isn't, just, a, uh, this isn't just an afterthought. Like this is the main issue. Opening day this past week was fantastic, but none of it matters unless you get to the World Series. Church, like everything we are doing this morning, like it hangs on this conviction that Jesus really is who he says that he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the son of God. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is, he is the perfect embodiment, the full, perfect definition of love, who because of his infinite love condescended from heaven. And he took on flesh and he lived this sinless life that you and I could not live. And he willingly and purposefully went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died. And then three days later, he literally and physically walked out of that tomb alive. And church, what we're saying here this morning is that that's not just a fairy tale that we like to tell. Like It's not just a metaphor for how to go and overcome really difficult things in your life. What we're saying is that if that did not literally and physically happen, then everything we're doing here this morning is completely in vain. Our faith is in vain. My preaching is in vain. My entire job is in vain. Our entire gathering that we do week after week after week, it is completely in vain. Church, what in the world are we singing about if Jesus isn't actually literally and physically alive? Right? Like what, like, what are we doing here if he's not actually alive? Why in the world would we go and have awkward conversations about Jesus if he's not actually alive? Why in the world would any of us follow a person who lived 2,000 years ago if he's not actually still alive today? Church, what the Bible says about itself is that if everything that we are doing is completely in vain, if none of what we're talking about this morning is true. But what it continues to say is that if it is true, and everything changes. It's a deal breaker. Like if, if Jesus really was crucified, dead, and buried, and he walked out of that tomb alive, then it means that he's just a little bit more than a prophet or a good teacher, right? Like if Jesus really was crucified, dead, and buried, then it means that he really is who he says that he is. And if he is who he says that he is, then it means that he really might have power over sin and death. And if he really has power over sin and death, what that means is that my sins can be completely forgiven and he can fully set me free. It's a complete game changer. I love the way that J.R. Packer talks about it. He talks about the difference between optimism and the Christian hope, which is founded in the resurrection. He says this. He says, optimism is a wish without warrant. The Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will actually come or not. But the Christian hope, which is based upon the strength of the resurrection, it expresses knowledge and confidence that every single day of my life and every moment beyond it, I know that the best is yet to come. In other words, church, like the resurrection, it changes absolutely everything. And so all I want to do this morning is just talk about why that is. And I want to talk about why it's, it makes sense to believe in a literal and physical resurrection this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. And if you didn't bring it this morning, it's no big deal. I'm going to put these passages up on the screen and you can easily follow along with us. 
uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. The story we're going to look at is going to kick off with, with two very, very famous women. The first is going to be uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? We, we, we talked about her story a few weeks back, and she's there at the very beginning of Jesus' life, obviously, and so she knows who he is, and she's faithfully following all the days of his life until the very end. Uh, the other Mary that's going to be in the story is Mary Magdalene. We're going to talk a little bit about her story a little bit later on uh, in the message, but um, she's going to have the incredible privilege of being the very first one to see Jesus is actually alive, and she's going to have the incredible privilege of being the first evangelist that goes to and tells everyone else the good news about um, his resurrection. And so that's where we want to pick it up here in verse 1. It says this, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. I love how Mary, the mother of Jesus is always talked about as the other Mary here. Um, there was a violent earthquake in verse 2. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you came looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will find him. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the other disciples. Have you ever been afraid and filled with joy at the exact same time? I was trying to think about like what that emotion, what that, ex- what that experience was actually like. I was thinking back to... Uh, time when I was a kid, I had a chance to meet Andre the Giant wearing a Hulk Hogan t-shirt as a, as a child, and that was absolutely terrifying. Uh, incredible amount of joy getting to meet a, a childhood hero and stuff terrifying at the same time. Probably a better analogy was the day that Caleb was born. A de- I mean, it was a different kind of fear going on that day, but an overwhelming amount of joy. I was just absolutely that dad that was taking way too many pictures of my son and posting them on Instagram and just going nuts because like, I had to do everything in me to share that joy with anyone who was willing to listen. That's exactly what's going on here in this text. Verse 8 says that they were afraid and they were filled with joy, and so they ran to tell the other disciples. And what's, what's funny about this scene is they don't even fully understand everything that's going on at this point in time. Like verse 5, like the angel's going to say, uh, has to remind him and say, don't be afraid. Jesus has risen just like he said that he would. In other words, I don't understand why you're so terrified because Jesus has been calling this day. He's been predicting this day from the very beginning. He's told you exactly what was going to take place. Matthew chapter 12, like the religious leaders are going to come and they're going to ask Jesus for a sign that Jesus actually is who he says that he is. And, and you remember what he says? I mean, he says, he says, he's like, you want, to, you want me to prove who I am? Okay, here's this. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, you want to know who I am? Like, here's how you're going to know who I am. In the exact same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights, I am the Son of Man, and I am going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and for three nights. And in the exact same way that Jonah came out of that experience alive, I too am going to come out of that experience alive. Like Jesus is calling a shot from the very beginning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he had to be killed and on the third day raised to life. Like Matthew 27, like the whole reason that they put a giant boulder in front of the empty tomb was because the chief priests and the religious leaders, they remembered what he said, that after three days, he was going to rise again. So church, here's my point. Like none of this is incidental, right? Like he was not a victim of an angry mob. None of this is incidental. The entire thing was planned. It was purposeful. He called his shot and still in the middle of calling his shot, the people who knew him the best and who loved him the most had a hard time believing the whole thing was true. 
Like, uh, verse 17 at the end of this passage, like the disciples are first going to see Jesus, the resurrected Christ, for the very first time. And it's going to say that some of them were still doubting. Like, they see this and they're sitting there going, oh, uh, what do I do with this? Like, he was dead, he was crucified, dead and buried, and now he's standing here right in front of me. Like, what in the world do I still do? With they were still doubting. They had a hard time with it. I, I mean, I mean uh, Thomas is going to be like, he's alive? Are you kidding me? Yeah, right. Like, uh, let me touch the, the wounds in his hands and let me put my fingers in the holes that are in his feet and then I might believe. So here's the deal, church. If you're here this morning and you're saying, okay, literal physical resurrection is kind of hard to believe, like I totally get it, right? You're in great company because none of what we're talking about is, is completely normal. There's nothing normal about the things that we're talking about. But here's the deal, church. When, when Jesus is crucified and he's dead and he's buried and then the next day he's not, like that demands an explanation, like when, when, when one day the tomb is literally and physically occupied, and the very next day the tomb is literally and physically not, it demands an explanation. Church, what in the world do you do with the empty tomb? I mean, this is going to be the event that changes everything from this point forward. And the best that they can come up with is, well, the disciples, they probably stole the body and made up this whole story. I mean, that's, that's the story that's going to be perpetrated right here. Verse 11, check this out. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say this, his disciples came during the night and they stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, you won't be killed for this massive lapse on your part. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Church, that's the best story that they could come up with. Can we think about that for a second? So these trained Roman soldiers, whose entire job was to protect the tomb from grave robbers. I, I, mean, I mean, they were sleeping on the job. And these disciples, we're talking B-teamers here, right? Like fishermen and tax collectors uh, who were hiding from the crowds days before, who denied even knowing Jesus when they were questioned. Um, all of a sudden, they came and they stole Jesus' body, and they made up this whole story. I mean, somehow, these trained Roman soldiers, uh, whose entire job was to protect this tomb from that exact same thing happening, these, these disciples sneak up in the middle of the night. And they're able to remove this giant stone, which took multiple people to put there in the first place. They're able to move this thing away without waking up these trained Roman soldiers who are sleeping right next to the stone to make sure that this exact same thing does not happen. Like, they're able to go move this thing away without waking up these Roman soldiers. Like, none of it makes any sense. On top of that, they get into the tomb, and what every gospel and historical narrative is going to say is that not only was the tomb empty, but the linens that were, wrapped, that were wrapping Jesus' body, they were left behind. So not only did they manage to remove this stone while the Roman guards are fast asleep, they got in there and they're going, ooh, yeah, uh, let's take the time and let's unwrap his body and let's fold him neatly inside of this tomb. I mean, question, let me ask you something. Like, if you're afraid for your life that these people are going to wake up and come in and kill you if they catch you robbing this, this, this tomb, like, are you going to take the time to unwrap a body? I mean, beyond that, let me ask you this. Uh, if you're carrying out a dead body, would you, would you prefer carrying out a body that's neatly wrapped in clean linen? Or would you like the broken, bruised, and bloodied, rotting corpse touching your flesh as you're carrying this thing out? Church, none of this whole thing makes sense, right? The story, it doesn't make sense. Beyond that, like, why would they do it? What's their motivation? Is it money? Is it power? Is it sex? Is it control? 
I mean, aren't those the things that a lot of cult leaders want to go after in order, if I'm going to start my own religion and I'm going to, I, I, that's what I want. I want to gain power and prestige and all these different kinds of things. The problem with that explanation is that they received none of those things. They never, ever, ever received any of these things. I mean, Paul's going to say it like this in his teaching. He's going to say, God appointed we apostles to be the lowest of the low, to have the least amount of power, to be the most despised, so that we can demonstrate that our hope is not in this life, but in the resurrection that's still to come. Church, that's their own testimony. That was the witness of their life. Like Paul, God appointed we to be the lowest of the low, to have the least amount of power, to be the most despised, so that we can demonstrate that our hope is not in this world right now, but it's in the resurrection that's still to come. Church, they had absolutely nothing. Like if you want to go and maintain control or have power over people, you want to manipulate them for your own purposes, I promise you grace is the last message that you're going to preach. Right? Like if you want to gain control, you're going to be preaching all kinds of legalism. It's going to be things like, hey, you want to be saved? Then you need to meet me at this hotel at 8 p.m. You want to be saved? Then you need to go do this, this, and the other. You want to be saved? Then you need to be giving this much money to me. Otherwise, you will not be saved. You do not preach grace if your goal is power, fame, money, or control, or anything of the message. They are preaching the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by God's grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Church, they were setting people free from the oppression of the law, not confining them to it. I love this the description of the early church. This comes from the second century, and this is from a non-believer who's paying attention to the life of the early church at this time. And here's how he describes this. He's writing back to one of the Roman emperors, and here's what he says. He says, they marry like everyone else. I mean, he's, just, he, he's, so, he's so confused by this early church gathering. And I want you to see what actually was produced in the first century at the beginning of the church. He says, they marry like everyone else. They beget children, but they don't expose them after they're born, meaning they don't let them die like everyone else does. They have a common table, but no common bed. In other words, everyone's welcome to their table. They're willing to share their food, but they're not willing to share their bed. They're, 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 they're sexually conservative, right? It's, it's reserved for a husband and for a wife in the context of marriage. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but through their way of life, they surpass these laws. They love all people, even people who disagree with them and hate them and want them dead. They're persecuted by all people. They're as poor as beggars, and yet they make many people rich. Isn't that awesome? Like they're as poor as beggars. They have absolutely nothing there, but they make many other people rich. They're abused, and yet they bless. They are assaulted, and yet as they who show respect, doing good, they are sentenced like evildoers. Church, like that's just the beginning of this description here. This is one of the most beautiful descriptions we've ever seen of a gathering of people, and that, what was, that is what was produced as a result of their message. Beyond that, like, every one of the apostles and every one of the disciples are going to end up giving their life for this message that Jesus really was alive. Like, Peter is going to be crucified upside down. And a week before his death, he's going to have to watch his wife be crucified also. And they're never going to recant to their faith. Like, John is, John is going to be boiled alive in oil, right? He's going to be boiled alive in oil, but it actually does not kill him. And it's going to freak everyone out so much that they're going to exile him to the island Patmos, which is where John's going to write the book of Revelation at that point in time, but like that's what's going on. And yeah, I know that there's a lot of people who are martyred for their faith, but here's the thing, like you don't die for something that you know is a lie. Like the terrorists and the people who are martyrs today, they're dying for something that they genuinely believe is true. You do not give your life to something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is absolutely a lie. Church, what in the world happened? Like what, what, what's your explanation for the empty tomb? I mean, a lot of people are sitting there going, okay, well, maybe the whole thing was a giant hallucination or a dream. 
right? I mean, a lot of people think they just dreamed the whole thing and they saw him spiritually, but not physically. Number one, like, what party do they go to where everybody's doing that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It does, like, beyond that, there's still the fact of an empty tomb, right? Like, that's not a dream. That's not a hallucination. And that's not a physical versus spiritual reality. Physically and literally, that tomb is still empty. Physically and literally, that body was there. And physically and literally, that body is no longer there. Beyond that, like, history is going to acknowledge hundreds of different eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Like, it's not just his disciples that are, that are giving this message that Jesus is now alive, but hundreds of different eyewitnesses. Paul's going to say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to say, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter, then the apostles, and then over 500 eyewitnesses at the exact same time, then to me and then to many other people. In other words, it's not just a few people that are all telling this great story. There's going to be over 500 independent testimonies all confirming the exact same thing. I mean, do we have any trial lawyers in this room? I mean, I, I'm not a trial lawyer. I slept at a Holiday Inn one time, and so I think I get it. But, like, if, you, if you've got one eyewitness on your case, like, you've got a pretty good case. If you've got five different people that are all saying the exact same thing, like, it's a shoo-in. You've won your case, right? If you've got 500 different people that are all testifying to the exact same thing, seeing them at different times and at different places, like, there's no doubt about it. You've won your case. Church, like, what are we doing with the empty tomb? What's the possible explanation? I mean, some people think, okay, well, maybe he wasn't actually dead, right? Maybe he was just mostly dead, kind of like Monty Python or something like that. Like, maybe he just didn't fully die. So I'm not kidding. Like, people actually believe this. So here's the explanation, okay? Um, after Jesus was beaten and tortured within inches of his life, after he was hung on a cross and tortured by professional Roman executioners for hours while he's slowly suffocating, after he was stabbed in the side with a spear to confirm that he was dead, again, by professional, trained Roman executioners, after blood and water poured out of his side, which we know today is a sign that you're actually dead because when you're dead, the blood clots and separates the water and the blood. Like after his body was wrapped in linen and placed in a tomb three days later, um, Jesus, who has had no food and no water, somehow is able to wake up and he's got enough strength and Chuck Norris ninja skills to be able to push this rock out of its place, which took many Roman soldiers to put there in the very first place. Then he's able to overcome and subdue the Roman soldiers or else convince them to tell a completely different story than the one they actually told. And then he's able to go and convince the disciples um, of, this, of this story. And he's able to manipulate them and convince them to tell something that no one else is telling in the first century. He's able to convince them that he's actually the resurrected Messiah. And they go telling this story until their very death. And meanwhile, like, no one else in the first century is telling this story that uh, he was only partially dead to begin with. Church, like nothing else makes sense. What are we doing with the empty tomb? Like something happened. He was crucified and he was dead and he was buried. And three days later, the tomb is empty. Church, what are we doing with that? Like, there's a story here in Acts chapter 5, and I love this. The Roman government is debating about what to do with the apostles. This is just after the resurrection. They're preaching the resurrected Christ. Uh, the Roman officials, like, they're ticked off about this. They're trying to find a way to put them all in prison, and they're trying to figure out what to do with the apostles. They're preaching the resurrection, and they say, uh, there's a Pharisee named Gal Gamaliel. He stands up, and he says this, and he says, Men of Israel, take care what you pro propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, meaning he claimed to also be divine, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who rose up in the days of the census, I'm sorry, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. Uh, he too perished, and all those who followed him were also scattered. In other words, like Wikipedia is going to list about 80 different people around the, the time of Christ who are also going to claim divinity, much like Jesus did. And what he's saying is uh, that Thutis did the same thing. Judas of Galilee did the same thing. They all had different followers. But when those people died, when Thutis and Judas of Galilee died, all their followers dispersed and nothing came of their whole movement. Here's what he says. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan of action is of men, it's going to be overthrown. But if it is of God, then you will not be able to overcome them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Church, let me ask you a question. Like, has the movement ever died off? No. Like the movement has just continued building from this time forward. He was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried. Now all of a sudden he's not, and all of a sudden the gospel completely explodes on the scene. Friday and si Saturday, like the disciples could not be more depressed. Sunday comes and the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. There's over 500 people seeing the exact same thing. The disciples do a complete 180, and this becomes the event that sparks the greatest revival that the world's ever known. Church, what else are you going to do except go and tell the world? That Jesus is actually alive. Like at the end of chapter 28, he's going to go and he's going to meet his friends and, and he's going to re reveal himself to them. And that's when he gives the great commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And remember, and teaching them to deserve everything that I've commanded you to do. And remember, I'm going to be with you always. He didn't even have to tell them that. Like as soon as they're realizing that he is who he says he is, they were bursting at the seams ready to tell everybody who was willing to listen. I mean, in Acts chapter 1, he's going to have to remind them. He's going to say, okay, I want you to slow down. Like, I know that you're so convinced I'm actually alive. I know that this whole thing is overwhelming, but you actually need to slow down. and need to wait on the Holy Spirit so that he can bring power to the ministry that you're about to begin with. Like, they cannot wait to tell everybody about the resurrected king. Church, what in the world would you do if you were there at the empty tomb? Like, what else is there to do if you're there, you're marrying, and you're marrying, and you're going, and you're saying, oh my gosh, the tomb was filled, now it's not. Like, what else are you going to do? Like, what would you do if you're Thomas, and you had the opportunity to put your fingers in the holes where Jesus is, where the nails were in his hands? Like, what else are you going to do? You, you've got to understand at this point in time, like, all of their hope is transitioning to confidence at this point in time. Everything that they hoped would be true about Jesus, it is transitioning to complete confidence. They're staring at Jesus and they're going, you've got to be kidding me, this whole thing is true. Like, what do you do with the resurrected Christ? Everything that he's been saying about himself, it's actually true. We thought it would probably be true, but all of their hope is now transitioning to confidence. They're beholding his beauty, they're seeing him alive. And everything's starting to connect, and they're going, oh my gosh. Like, if he's standing here and he really is alive, then it means that he is who he says that he is. And if he is who he says that he is, then it means that he really does have power over sin and death. And if he really does have power over sin and death, then this means that everything that he's been saying about himself is absolutely true. My past no longer has to define me. My present can be fully redeemed, and my future can be eternally secure. Like everything at one moment, everything is coming together and all of their hope is now turning into profound confidence based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to explain it like this. He's going to say, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. In other words, none of this was incidental. Like his, his crucifixion was not an accident. He was not just a victim of an angry mob. The entire thing was planned, church. Like we were lost and we were completely dead in our sins. And God is infinite in his love and his mercy. 
It's why he sent Jesus. He's going to say that the wages of our sin is death, meaning because we've sinned, we deserve physical death and eternal separation from God. So Jesus willingly went to the cross for our sins as a substitute for the penalty of our sins. But the incredible news is like, uh, it says that he was raised to life for our justification. So he didn't just leave it there. He was also then raised to life for our justification, meaning because he was able to conquer sin and death, you and I can actually be declared righteous before a holy and righteous God. That's what justification means. When you're trying to justify your behavior before a boss or a spouse or a friend or something like that, you're trying to explain to them about how you're actually right when they think that you're wrong. That's what justification is. Like, how in the world do you do that before a holy and perfect and righteous God? I mean, are we really going to sit there and say, okay, uh, well, God, um, I was better than probably 51% of the rest of the world. And how are you defining that? Well, according to how I define my own goodness, right? Like, is that really the standard? Is that how you're going to justify yourself before God? Like, it makes no sense. I, I feel like I was a pretty good person. How are you judging that? Like, how do you justify yourself before a holy and perfect and righteous God? who has no sin, there's no defilement inside of him, how in the world do you sit there and say, you need to approve of me? I mean, the Bible is going to be clear. He's going to say things like, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, there's none who are righteous, not even one person. Isaiah is going to say that all of our righteous acts, they're like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. In other words, church, like, your obedience is fantastic. And our awesome morality, it is fantastic, but it cannot ever, ever, ever justify us before a holy and perfect God. What we need is a substitute, someone who can come and do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And it's exactly what God has given to us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of us are still sitting there going, okay, well, that sounds fantastic, Aaron, but um, like, you don't know what I've done. And that's okay because it doesn't really matter because I know what Jesus has done. Like here's what I do know. No matter how long your, your rap sheet is, no matter how long your track record is, uh, you cannot ever, ever, ever out God's grace. It's not about what you've done. It's about everything that he's done on your behalf. He's your substitute. You weren't righteous. Jesus was righteous for you. It's why there's no boasting in genuine Christianity. There's no, there's no self-righteousness. We were never righteous to begin with. I'm bringing nothing to the table. Jesus was righteous on my behalf. It's why we sing. It's why we worship. It's why we give our lives for the sake of his glory. I wasn't righteous, but Christ came and he was righteous on my behalf. And some of us are sitting there going, but you don't know the things that I've done. And the reason I know this is because like, the, the scripture is filled with story after story after story of people who've been trying to outrun the grace and mercy of God and they failed every single time. Like God just keeps fighting them and saying, no, 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 you're not too far gone. Like I'm actually going to save you. And not just, I'm just gonna, it's not just that I'm going to save you, but I'm going to actually redeem your present and give you a hope for a future. I mean, it's every single story. You do not get a biography in scripture unless you've got junk in your past that Christ has come in and fully redeemed. Like Paul says it, I mean, look at, look at the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul, if you don't know, wrote nearly half the New Testament, probably the most effective evangelist and church planner in the history of the world. Here's what he says about himself. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am the worst of sinners. And when he's saying that, he's not just being self-deprecating here. He actually means it, right? If you know anything about his past, like he was a murderer of Christians. 
Like he was one of the early persecutors of the early church. He actually murdered Christians and hated people that were professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ until Christ came and he revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. Everything changed when he saw the resurrected Christ. Like it demands a verdict. What in the world are you going to do when you're seeing an empty tomb and you're seeing the resurrected Christ? He's going to continue in verse 16 and he's going to say, For that reason I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You think that you're too far gone? I promise you, you're not. You can't hold a candle to the things that Paul has done. Church, you cannot out God's grace. Like Peter, I mean, just look at Peter. Three days earlier, he is denied even knowing Jesus. And this is his track record, Right? I mean, one day he's just like a thousand miles per hour. I'm all in, God. I'm willing to walk on water with you. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I'm sinking. I, 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 I'm there. I'm going to defend you. And now I want to kill this man who's trying to take you. Like, that is Peter's story. He's denying that he even knows Jesus. Do you remember that, how, how Jesus restores him in John chapter 21? This is immediately after the resurrection. And can you imagine, like, the first time that Peter has a conversation with Jesus after the resurrection? Like, can you imagine the amount of guilt and shame other people stayed loyal, and I ran. I didn't even admit to knowing who you are. Honestly, can you think about the shame and the guilt of that moment? They're walking on the Sea of Galilee, on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, just after the resurrection, and they finally had their one-on-one moment. And you remember what Jesus asked them? He says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know that I love you, Lord. And he says, feed my lambs. Peter's got to be saying, you're not done with me? You've got an assignment for me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. You've got an assignment, like you're not done with me? Peter, do you love me? Go and take care of my lambs. And, and the entire time he's got to be sitting there going like, like I've got a future here? Like I failed you time and time and time again. And he's saying, Peter, what you don't understand is like, I redeem people. I don't just forgive them and and forgive their sins of their past. Like, I I redeem their present. I give them a hope for a future. Like, your brokenness, I can redeem and I can perfectly use. Like, I can use for my glory. I'm not done with you, Peter. It's every single story, church. Mary Magdalene right here at the empty tomb. Like, back in Luke chapter 8, it says that that Jesus actually had to cast seven demons outside out of her life. Seven demons. She was possessed literally by seven different demons. And we don't know the specifics of exactly what her past was, but I promise you, church, if you're possessed by seven demons, then you've got baggage. Right? Like you've got a past that you're ashamed about. Like you've got things done back then that you don't ever want to talk about. Like, and some of you need to hear that right now because in Christ, like you don't have to be defined by your past. Your past doesn't condemn you any longer. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has completely set you free from the law of sin and death. Some of you need to hear that right now because you're not exactly believing it. You're sitting there going, I, you don't know my track record. But here's the reality is we know exactly what Jesus did on your behalf. And because of what he did on your behalf, you do not have to be defined by your past or condemned by your past any longer. Church, Mary Magdalene goes on to be one of the, Jesus' most faithful followers. Like, she is there weeping at the foot of the cross when everybody else ran. Like, she is there at the empty tomb when everybody else was still in hiding. 
Like at some point in the future, she's going to be given this title, Apostle to the Apostles, because God is going to give her the privilege of being the first one to see the resurrected Messiah and the first one to go and to tell everyone else the great news. You know what an incredible privilege that is? You got to understand that's like women did not have a voice in those days. Like a woman's testimony was not even allowed in the court of law. Like women did not have the women did not have the value then that they now have today. And she's given this incredible privilege church. If Christ is actually alive, then you do not have to be defined by your past. Your present can absolutely be redeemed and your future can be eternally secure. Like, what in the world are we doing with the empty tomb? What is the possible explanation? You think that they're just making this whole thing up? Like, you think it was a massive conspiracy and they stole the body and no one ever saw them steal it? I mean, you think that they stole this body and they're never tried. There's no evidence that ever puts them on trial for this capital offense of stealing bodies. The most motivated and powerful government, government in the world could not find anything to condemn the disciples. You think that they're just making this whole thing up? Like, this is not the story that you tell if you're making it all up for something that you know is a lie. Like, if, you, if, if you're making up a story to cover up a lie, like, you're going to be talking great about yourself. You're not going to be saying things like, yeah, we d- doubted that he was actually alive. You're not going to be saying things like, yeah, I denied even knowing who Jesus was. And you're definitely not going to be putting a group of women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They had no credibility, church. Like, this happened. It happened. It it literally and physically happened. And when it did, it changed absolutely everything. And the world was never the same again. I'm going to end with this. And I've shared this a number of times before. And I think this bears repeating every single Easter. So if you've heard it again, just let this build your faith. Scholars of all faith, they agree on a number of facts that Scripture affirms about Jesus. And I love this because these are things that you don't even have to be a believer to recognize that these things are true. You don't even have to believe in the veracity of the Word of God or the Bible. These are things that people of all faith, whether you're a believer or not believer, these are things that people agree that are true about Jesus. He was a literal, physical, historic man who lived a virtuous life during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He was a historical figure. His reputation was that it was, uh, at least he was a great teacher and a miracle wor- worker who accomplished amazing things that people could not explain naturally. That was his reputation. He did things that people had no explanation for whatsoever. He had a brother named James who was not a believer in the deity of Christ until the resurrection. <clears throat> Can you just think about that for a second? He had a brother named James who was not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ until the resurrection. Can you imagine, like, what does it take for you to convince your brother that you are the son of God? Like, I've been trying my entire life, and it's never <laughs> worked. It's just never worked. Uh, James was not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ until he was raised from the dead. And then he goes and he gives his life, conf- telling everybody this message that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. What in the world happened? Why do you make that change at the time when your life is on the line? Like hundreds who knew and followed Jesus, they claimed that he was the Messiah during and after his life. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of the Jewish Passover because he claimed that he was the Messiah. In other words, this was not some accident. This was not some angry mob that just wanted Jesus dead. Like he was, they were killing him because he was claiming to be Israel's Messiah. Darkness fell over the earth, and an earthquake occurred roughly at noon when he died. His disciples were devastated and oppressed when he was crucified. Many of them weren't off in a cave somewhere plotting about how to start a brand new religion that would give them all kinds of power, fame, sex, and money that they would never actually receive. 
Jesus was buried in a tomb by an unbelieving Jew named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, meaning it's kind of like um, a Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, meaning that this was not some conspiracy. He wasn't a friend of the disciples or part of a plot. Roman guards protected that grave. Three days later, the tomb was empty. No body was ever found. The disciples were never tried for robbing a grave, and the disciples did a complete 180. They claimed that he rose from the dead. The common day of worship moved from Saturday to Sunday in recognition of the resurrection. They spent the rest of their lives spreading this message, and all would eventually die for that message. Church, like, that couldn't even happen during Watergate. Trained military men taught to defend this office buckled under the pressure because they knew what they were talking about was a lie. Nearly 500 people gave testimony to that exact same story immediately after, after the crucifixion. What should have been dead, what should have been done. Wikipedia says 80 other people around this time were saying the exact same thing. But the one difference is that when those people passed away, every one of their followers dissipated too. And this is when everything takes off. The greatest revival that the world has ever seen. The gospel continues to spread, and it builds on the sake of this credibility, church. That is the strength of the resurrection story. I love what Wolf Hart Pannenberg has to say. He's a very liberal scholar from the early 1900s, and I actually don't like much of his theology, but I thought this quote was fantastic. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe that it happened, you have to change the way that you live. Church is exactly right. It would change everything. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a man at the apartment complex behind us. And I talked to them and was praying with them and I was sharing the gospel with them. And we went through the entire gospel and he agreed with every little point. He is a sinner. Our sin separates us from a holy God. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, fully God, fully man. He came and he lived a sinless life as a substitute for our behalf. He went to the cross on purpose and died as a substitute for us because the wages of our sin is death. He agreed with every single point of these things that salvation is a gift of God's grace that must be received. And I asked him at the end, I was like, what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? And he said, everything in my life would have to change. The only person I've ever talked to that sat there and recognized and realized the reality of who Jesus is and says, you know what, I don't want anything to change. Church, this change is good news. Because what it means is your past can be forgiven. And it means that your present can be fully redeemed. And what it means is you can actually have hope in the future because your future will be eternally secure. Church, who in the world do you say that Jesus is? I mean, the word of God in history is going to give us two real options, right? He's, he's either God or he's actually the greatest fraud that the world's ever known. I mean, aren't those the only two legit options? He's actually the son of God or the biggest fraud that we've ever known. I mean, he claimed this about himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed to be the Messiah, the son of God. It's why he was crucified. Like, he, he does not give you the option of saying, no, you know what, Jesus is just a great moral teacher. He's just a great example for how to live. He taught some really, really good things. Like, that's not true. You don't make those claims about yourself and deceive billions of people from that point on through the rest of history and still be a good moral teacher. He's either the son of God or he's either the greatest fraud that we've ever seen in the history of the world. Church, who in the world do you say that Jesus is?